A good afternoon from Wildfire Studio Radios just outside a rainy Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on a Monday afternoon in the Fawz. We pass Thanksgiving, head on to the Christmas holiday, and a lot going on in the world of sports. Welcome to Colton Court. I'm your host, Gerald Colton, along with six-time pro bowler Jerry Evans. What up, Ja? What up? Thanks for tuning in. We had a great weekend and a lot of sports stuff and so much to talk about. And a little adventure getting to the studio here today, but we survived the floods. Yeah. <laughs> a little rainy, <laughs> about a couple of days and, and three or four days of rain, and the water's rising up on us a little bit, but we made it. The gods are angry, and Taylor made it in behind the glass there, calling all the shots for us here. We will be joined in a little while by veteran NBA official Ed Rush, who's also had a whole lot of other interesting things in his incarceration or in incarnation as a sports person, not incarceration. <laughs> Sorry, Ed. <laughs> Tremendously upstanding citizen. We're going to hear from him on a whole lot of different topics and uh, his experiences and expertises. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But, Ja, yeah. there was so much that went on over Thanksgiving weekend. I don't even know where to start. Yeah. I want to touch on Phil and Tiger. I want to do Eagles. I want to do Markel Fultz. So let's yeah, start. Tiger loss. How about that? We, we are not a hockey show per se. <laughs> we're all sorts of we're all sorts of sports. But um, last week we did have Frank Saravalli, the lead reporter for TSN, sort of the equivalent of ESPN up in Canada, and we talked all sorts of hockey, and including his take on the Flyers and his take that they are the epitome of mediocrity and have been for quite some time. And the Flyers made a move today where they. Fired general manager Ron Hextall, not to be confused with Coach <coughs> Hextall, who was also, they were somewhat joined at the hip. Ron Hextall, one of his early moves was to bring in H- Hextall, who would coach his son mm-hmm. up in college and brought him in. And it's been a failed somewhat four years that they've been together, and there's been a lot of pressure lately, it seems, yeah. to maybe make a coaching change. There's speculation that Hextall was fired by the powers of be at Comcast for his unwillingness to finally make that move. We're not sure. There's been no official reports. Paul Holm were in the president and the former general manager issued a statement that they no longer were on the same wavelength about the direction of the club and had to make a change at this time. No successor has been named, although I imagine Holmgren will fill in in the interim, at least. Um, and, you know, look, we're in the middle of the season at this point. It's not that a whole lot of moves are going to be happening anyhow. But clearly the Flyers have foundered, and here we are over a quarter of the way into the season. They're in Nowheresville and just fired their GM. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I guess we were a week late with our with our hockey act. Yeah, but, it would have uh, been nice to have one today. <laughs> a whole lot going on. But the one thing I don't I don't I'm not gonna sit here act like I know much about the Flyers or watch them every time they play like I do the Sixers. But um but you would think that that Ron would at least had addressed the goaltending, right? Or did we you know, lose a couple guys to injury? Because I know one year, like a couple years ago, we had a real good goaltender. Then I think he got hurt, and then this young kid kind of stepped in and was was hot during the playoffs. And then I haven't heard anything from him. So, I mean, you would you would at least think an ex goaltender. Because he was an ex-goaltender, right? You know, he was, and he was probably the last really good Flyers right. goalie that they had back and, in the nineties. And, and, and like helped, well, he early nineties, but he helped lead the Stanley, the Flyers to the Stanley Cup uh, in late at '87, okay. and they went again right. in '97. Right, right. um, and he was a big part of of two pretty good Flyers teams in different generations because the second one was with Eric Lindros um, since that time. And, and and you go back in history, the Flyers won two Stanley. They traded Cups. Lindros for him, though, didn't they? Was that the trade? He, he actually. Was part of it. Uh, it wasn't just for him. Oh, okay. There were a whole lot of people right, that, that, it, yeah. and, and that went to the <clears throat> Quebec Nordiques that later became the uh, Colorado Avalanche and won three Stanley Cups yeah. in, in large part because of that nucleus that they got in that Lindros trade. Okay. But um, going back 
in history, the Flyers had tremendous goaltending that led them to two Stanley Cups in 74 and 75 and Bernie Perrant, Hall of Famer. After that, they had some good ones, and one, one in particular was Pelly Lindbergh, who unfortunately suffered a tragic death in an automobile accident in the prime of his career, actually even in early stages of his career. Um, and then after Hextall, there have been all sorts of different experiments from John Van Beesbrook to uh, Roman Czechmonic. And then the, the worst one of all was they had a guy named Bobrovsky, who has gone on to win Vezina Cups and been a great goalie for Columbus, we let him go to go sign a guy named Ilya Brzgalov, which had a famous something like seven-year, $49 million disastrous contract. All these guys, I really, you know I don't know who you're talking and, about. And, and listen, it's been... But, but I'm it pretty has sure been, we got some listeners. That it has been an Achilles heel, the Flyers. They are less in league in save percentage, meaning yeah. that means they give up more goals on the shots against them than any other team, and you can't win, you can't win games that way. Yeah. So we're going to see the Flyers probably head in a slightly different direction, but it's still Paul Holmgren, it's still the old Flyers mentality, I'm not sure how different that direction is going to be. There has been a Flyers mentality forever. It was handed down from Ed Snyder, who was the owner. Ed Snyder passed away a couple years ago. But it's always been Flyers guys, pretty much, who have run that club, from right. Bob Clark to Paul Holmgren to Hextall. We'll see who the successor is. But it's worth noting, there were also two firings last week of coaches. and They don't have a lot of patience in the NHL. There's always been, already been yeah, about four I've or five that. coaches I've changes. Edmonton got rid of their coach. St. Louis did. And there's some good coaches out there on the street. Um, so there may have been some pressure from the Flyers' big brass or the, the owners of the Flyers and, and Comcast to try to make a move, and Hextall may have been reticent to do so, and we'll see what happens from here going forward. But listen, that's a, that's the end of our hockey for today, but we're becoming more, and more of a hockey show. And I want to start out really uh, from there to talk about the Eagles, and the Eagles um, have had this very uh, disappointing year following their Super Bowl victory yeah. last year, but they got back on the winning track yesterday. They had a home victory against the Giants. They just survived. 25-22 after the disaster yeah. in New Orleans a week before. Mm-hmm. But, Jaws, we are sitting here 11 games in. Atop of the NFC East are Dallas now and Washington at 6-5. and five. Mm-hmm. And then the Eagles are at 5-6. This coming week, Dallas plays New Orleans. Winners of 10 straight, crushing everybody. Clearly, right now, the hottest team in the National Football League. And that that's who Dallas plays Thursday. So the odds are against Dallas winning their touchdown underdog. Although it's an interesting game because New Orleans has won 10 straight and covered 9 straight against the spread during that run. Dallas has won 3 straight. Covered their last like four underdogs as well as these last three games against the spread. You got two pretty hot teams. Yeah. When you watch them play, Dallas Dallas is going to going not to the level New Orleans did, but the game's in Dallas and you don't know. But if Dallas loses Thursday night. And the Eagles beat the Washington Redskins on Monday at home, which they really should, then all of a sudden, twelve games in the season, four weeks to go, the Eagles will be tied atop the division. I, I said it last week. It's the NFC East, and we're, we're looking at these records, and they're they're pretty close together. I mean, the Saints are going to beat Dallas, even though it's in Dallas. They're going to beat Dallas. And you sit here with with the Eagles playing um, Washington at Philly again. I mean, back-to-back home wins, back-to-back home games against divisional teams that you can win is crucial at this part of the season. I mean, for them to have these, for them to have Dallas at home followed by Washington at home, that is an opportunity that you don't really get that much to have back-to-back divisional games. Then they go down to Dallas, and then it's, you go. It, it's, I mean, it's yeah, all in their own hands. It is, it, and that's how you want, you want it to be in your own hands as a player. Um, ho, you know, ho, last night we saw, or yesterday we saw the defensive line get some pressure. It looks like those guys are starting to figure each other out, what each other likes to do, how to play off each other, and they're starting getting home. What, what you want to see right now is you just want to see them to to keep ascending. You know, they took some steps back early in the season due to injury, due to lack of coaching staff that has moved on but 
That's what you have when you have success. When you win in the National Football League, it's hard to continue to win because, like I said before, people lead a team, coaches lead a team, players lead a team. You got more great film on, out there of you on what other teams study to try to beat you. So it's hard to be consistent and win. It's, you know, it's very hard to do that. And they're just struggling right now. But it looks like you know it's in their hands. They got back-to-back divisional opponents, starting with Washington at home. They just beat the Giants at home. I mean, what else do you want, right? You know, a couple of years. Going back a few years, the Giants won Super Super Bowls 42 and 46, being mediocre at midseason and getting it going. It's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Now, we're in a season where the Saints look terrific, the Rams look great, and and if the season ended today, you'd have no reason to believe those two teams don't play it out for the NFC Championship at some point. And and then over on the other side, Kansas City's look terrific, and you know New England's going to be there, and Houston. You know, your goal goal first is to win the division. That that was my point. So (laughs) win the division, you get in the playoffs, you have a chance. and, and And as a player, that's how you look at it, right, right Ja? Yeah. You win a division, you get in the playoffs, you have a chance. And and in the NFL, things can change quickly. Yes. Injuries can determine stuff, whatever it might be. Yeah. And it is a game of momentum. And clearly, you know, the old line, any given Sunday, any game, any team can beat another. Yeah. And if the Eagles just somehow click and start getting it back together, they could possibly return. You never know. And you have to, you know, you have to favor your matchups. Bottom line, you have to play to your strengths and, you know, expose your opponent weaknesses. Now, hopefully they can do that. Hopefully they see the running game as a strength of theirs as with this young running back and then mold him and hand the ball off they, more. Take they haven't pressure. called the plays that way. The line hasn't looked that way, but you never know. And, and the thing about it is, Joe, I mean, from my standpoint, a win in the NFL is a win. Now, yeah. yesterday's <laughs> win at home w- against the Giants w- in a w- game you need to win Yes. Yeah, coming off that awful performance and a couple bad losses, yes. you'd like to have seen them come out and play better if you're an Eagles fan. Yeah. Um, you know, they fell down <laughs> 12 nothing. They were down 19-3. You know, they didn't, they didn't overwhelm you and, and dominate the Giants, but they got the win. And when you, as a player, Jot, isn't every win you, you savor it? Hey, a win's a win. It doesn't matter how you got it. It's a win, and you go into the next week. And then the whole building that day, that whole week, of practice and preparation is such a different spirit, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's, it's hard to win the National Football League no matter who you are. It's hard to win. And I've played against teams who are 0-12, 0-14, and it's still a battle to win against those teams. Played against the, the Lions. They were 0-14 like or 15, went down there with New Orleans, and we were like, we cannot lose against this team. Last year, played against the 0-12-13 Browns and went into overtime with those guys. Luckily, we won. Goodness gracious. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to win the National Football League. So when you get that win, it makes your whole week better. But at the same time, you digest that win just like you digest the loss because Monday morning you do your corrections. By the time Monday afternoon comes, Monday evening, you're on to this next week, which is new challenges, which may be a whole different game plan, a whole different way to attack your opponent. You know, there was some interesting things out of yesterday, and I don't want to spend too much time right now on the Eagles. We're going to have Ed Rush on in about five minutes and change directions when he does. But And there's a few things I want to hit before then. But um, yesterday, Carson Wentz played better than he had in the past. He had a nice, solid game, one touchdown, no turnovers, high completion percentage in the 70s, and, and, and had a solid game. Of course, it was against the Giants' defense, which yeah. is not anything great, but by the same token, a win's a win, and hopefully, from his standpoint, they start getting momentum. But on the other side of the ball, the Eagles were starting a bunch of D-backs, some of which were signed yeah. off the street, literally, John. Um, <clears throat> and the Giants looked early like they could really take care of the Eagles. Eli's been hot. Their offense was rolling. They've got two incredible we- weapons in 
Odell Beckham and Barkley, Beckham, Saquon Beckham, Barkley. Yeah, Barkley. And in the second half, they sh- sort of played into the Eagles' hands. Pat Shermer's a first-year coach there, a former Eagles quarterback coach, a guy mm-hmm. who I have great regard for. But after the game, Odell Beckham seemed to take some exception. He didn't come right out and say it other than he was questioning the strategy. And you got to ask those questions to the coach. Watching the game, did you feel like the Giants really didn't, you know, in the second half, keep hitting it and try to bury the Eagles and did not give the ball to Barkley as he had dominated him in the first half? Is, is Pat Sherman the quarterback coach that, that Carson is missing from last year? No, Pat Shermer was a quarterback coach for Don McNabb. Oh, back way back Andy then. Reed. Oh, okay. And That's then he's moved on. He was actually head coach else. in Cleveland. He's been right. his, uh, the offense coordinator in St. Louis. Right, and, right, and he's right. a first-year coach with the Giants. Yeah, no, basically what you saw is you saw the Eagles get down early. I think uh, maybe a score was brought off the board because of a holding penalty or something. And Tough holding penalty, but it, but it was there. We, we, yeah. You saw a guy grip a jersey. Then they didn't move the chains because of a offensive pass interference uh, penalty on a, on a crucial third down. So those two penalties probably kept points off the board earlier on in the game in the first quarter. Uh, but what you saw is those guys being able to midstream adjust, come back down 16 points, two scores, three scores, however you want to say it, if you're going for two or not, but come down 16 points like the champions they were last year and come out with a W against a divisional opponent. And that's, bottom line, that's all that matters. What matters is they figured it out, they midstream adjusted, they fixed it at halftime, and came out and got a W. <laughs> so uh, That's what you want as so right a player, now, right? Philadelphia's happy today, back in love with Doug Peterson. It should be. Uh, <laughs> if you listen to the radio around here, it's not really a lot of happy people. But We'll give it another seven days to see how it goes after the <laughs> Washington game. But in the Back-to-back meantime, home divisional games is make you real happy real quick, though. So we talked about the any given Sunday, how you know in the NFL any team can beat anyone else, and and, and yeah. it's it's so true. It's been proven over and over again. Um, in basketball, it's true too. Pretty much in any professional sport, the worst team can still be the best team if you don't bring your best. Or the best team, if the bad team plays well, I mean they're all professional athletes. And on um, Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, the Sixers hosted the lowly Cleveland Cavaliers. Oh man! And you know the Cavs, uh, they lost a guy named LeBron James. It kind of hurt them. <laughs> and you know it's it's, it's amazing that LeBron could come into Cleveland. Take a terrible team, lead them to four straight NBA finals and a championship. He leaves, and they once again immediately become the worst team in the league. If yeah. people don't appreciate how valuable and how amazing that guy is and what he's doing in LA, uh, you know, there's there's so much proof of LeBron over his uh, now 15, 16 year career, but it, but he just continues to amaze me. But the Cavaliers came into the first Union Center on Wednesday night and really took it to the Sixers, led throughout the game. Played terrifically, shot terrifically. Sixers really didn't come bring it, didn't do it on defense, didn't, and, and felt like they could turn it on. Now they came back, fortunately for them, and uh, they were able to win. I guess that was Friday night was Cleveland. Right? I'm losing track of my days. There's been so many games. Yeah, but they came Friday. back on Sunday, and, and they beat Brooklyn, and they, they won again. A team a, that they lost to, right? They, they, they had been embarrassed in Brooklyn. One of their terrible losses early in the season was mm-hmm. losing by 25 in Brooklyn uh, before they got Jimmy Butler. So Jimmy mm-hmm. Butler has arrived. I don't mm-hmm. think he's necessarily gotten completely worked in in the comfort level yet for the club. But Jimmy Butler had a terrific game last night, scored yeah. 34 points, 12 rebounds, including the three-pointer with .4 seconds go for his yeah. second game winner since he's been here. Quite an acquisition already. And you know, I was thrilled to see them pick up the other superstar, but he's already made quite a contribution. Yeah, he's um, he's definitely a superstar, and he's showing it with you know two game winners in what six games, <laughs> six seven games. He got two game winning shots, but you know he he's playing well. I think his decision making is um, is educational for the young guys on on how he decides 
to maneuver through the basket, you know, how he decides when he's shooting, when he's not shooting, and uh, also his, his defense efforts too. You know, he's blocking shots, and, and he's doing it all. I mean, he's, he's not shying away from the game presence leader that the Sixers are lacking with, you know, being so young as a team. And like you said, I think they're starting to come along and starting to play better with each other, starting to learn where each other likes to be on the floor, starting to learn certain, you know, certain, you know, breakdowns on on on, on how to uh, get the ball to each other in their in their spots where they like it. But the bottom line is that, you know, he's helping them win games where I don't other than other good, you know, three point shooters as far as Reddick and and a couple other guys that we let go and Covington and those guys taking shots outside, he's really taking on that role on getting those tough outside shots and he's doing it with confidence. He's not even hesitating. Well, you know, it's from my standpoint, the Sixers now have a go-to guy down the stretch, despite the dominance of Joel Embiid and how great Ben Simmons can be and will be and somewhat is right now. They didn't necessarily have a good execution down the stretch. Right. And and clearly, Jimmy Sherlin, he's the winning time guy right now, and that's right. where you want your superstars to be, um, to step up and hit two two in your first couple of games. He had, he had never hit one before. <laughs> never least, hit what? At least certainly winner? not in Minnesota. He had never hit a game winner in Minnesota. Uh, I think he hit a couple in Chicago. He might have, but I, 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 the stat I saw was something like 0 for 13. Um, oh, I don't, I I'm not that. sure. I'm not sure my yeah. accuracy, and I don't want to yeah. be inaccurate, especially <laughs> since we have on the line with us former NBA official, former uh, director of NBA officials, and a whole lot of other titles in his career, including assistant football coach for Bloomsburg when Jairi was there. Welcome to Colton Court. Hi, Ed. How are you, Ed? What's Rush? up, Coach? Wow, I'm excited. I, you know, I look at, I listen to Colton Court, and. And you guys had World Be Free as a guest. I mean, I said, wow, I'm not sure that I can live up to all this. I'll, I'll certainly try. And, and I'm going to add one thing. Like, Jairi was as good, if not the best, basketball player as an offensive lineman that I've ever seen. You know, I mean, it, it, the it's... Dude had, the dude had game. It's funny, Ed. When, when I first started representing him, back then I could even actually still play a drop. Never very good. But um, I took him to the gym. My kids had a, had a practice, and, um, and and he came over. And, and Ed, he dunked on me. And, and you know, you see this 330-pound guy. You're not expecting him to get up the way he did. He could really get up. Yeah, he's this modern-day version of Charles Barkley. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, career, you know? it's funny you said that. I played a, uh, maybe about a month ago, I played a, a, a full-court basketball game. It was actually four-on-four, four, not five-on-five, five, so we got a good workout. And I played three games, and after those three games, we won two out of the three. And those guys were like, goodness gracious, like a 320, 30-pounder is not supposed to be able to move like that. <laughs> it was older guys, though. Right. I mean, it, was, it wasn't any, like, yeah. two young teenagers, or nothing, but they were pretty impressed, too. Yeah. Hey, dude, you have great feet and great hands. That's why you were so good at what you did. I appreciate it. And I think he probably chose the right sport, though. Anyway, <laughs> there's so much I want to speak to you about. I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, I've always been fascinated with officiating, and you've seen so the whole evolution of officiating. If I'm not mistaken, you joined the NBA in 1966, I think, um, and a very different day in the NBA. And it was two-man officiating crews, and we didn't have instant replay. Most of the games weren't on TV. You're traveling all over to, to 
outposts like Hershey for you know tons of games <laughs> that are played on neutral sites and all sorts of it's all sorts of different things. But right. growing up around the NBA with my uncle being the equipment manager for the Sixers, and I really I really took an interest, and he had to take care of the officials, as you know, Jeff Millman, and uh, you got to know him well over the yeah. years. But um, I always I great always had thing. great man. Thanks, and and I miss him terribly. We've talked about it on the show before, but I always took an interest yeah. in the officials and, and the importance they were in the game. And back when in the '60s and '70s, the officials had very large personalities. You had Yogi Strom, Mendy Rudolph, Daryl Garrettson, and, right. and these guys at Jake O'Donnell, and and it was such a different temperament. Guys would actually yell back. Like, there was an exchange of Yogi Strom would just get in your face right. and yell at you as a player, as a coach, <laughs> and I can't imagine how difficult that was to hold your temper. And, and then, and then, of course, he would yell at you, and then he'd give you the technical foul. Talk to me about the change in mentality over the years as to now officials turn their back. They don't engage. They keep calm. It's the best way to defuse it. Talk about that sort of change in the way to handle those types of situations. Uh, well, the emotion of the game it was so different. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Let's look at it this way. Is that um, <clears throat> we, we had to put our personality, a stamp on the game. And when you became a crew chief, then the game was yours. And so you had two people working. It was kind of like a, a, the, the boss and the apprentice. And the boss had to make sure that, you know, always, and an awful lot of officiating there was not blowing the whistle, but would be to tell guys, stay, like, knock it off. Let's put back off. Take your forearms off. Da, da, da. I'll give you an example. I had a, um, I'm working one of the, Great games of all time, and um, we're in Milwaukee, and it's Lou Alcindor slash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Wilt. And we come down the stretch, and the game is a war, and they both have five fouls. Get them together and say, no, look, don't embarrass us, but we don't want to foul you out. Right? Just don't embarrass us. Just keep playing and go hard, and you know, you know where the line is. We get it. We get it. Fine. And that's what happened. And it was a phenomenal game, and neither guy found out. Uh, and they didn't take advantage of us, and they didn't embarrass us. But we communicated that to them. Today's game, it's very difficult to do that because analytics, every, every, single, every single possession is graded. And like, so basically, these guys have to be in the 90%. They got to be 90, 91, 90. They, gotta, they have to be right more often than not. So believe it or not, if they get themselves down in the 80s, then there's going to be issues. But every single thing is great. And so all the little things that you did to prevent certain certain uh, in, in situations, like we would take and and we'd be at playoff games, uh, and you have a guy, like, man, I'll test your memory, Gerald, like Gus Johnson and Dave DeBusher. Sure. Now you know that those guys are going to be in hand-to-hand combat, and it's going to be tough. It was. I mean, I, I believe it was way more physical back then, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, no question. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, but that's the way the game was played. We refereed preventively. We would get those guys together and say, oh, look, we're going to let you play. You just do your thing. But, again, don't embarrass us. Keep your hands below the shoulders and and show respect for each other. Uh, we got, we'd say to them, to them stand in midcourt together. We'd say that to them before the game. Wow. Okay, we got you. And we play. Um, so we would like we'd have sets of rules depending on the matchup. And you know, obviously, we knew the game. We knew the players back and forth. Today, well, first place because of the freedom of movement stuff. I mean, I, I will say that that I enjoy the game today 
I mean, as much as I ever have. I think it's just absolutely phenomenal what's happened. And I'm excited to see where it's evolved. Um, you know, I had, the, I had the privilege of being on Jerry Colangelo's committee in 2001 when we changed all the contact stuff in the freedom of movement and really got the game to the point where it was opened up more. And we, and we, we took all, we made the lane more open and, you know, we created a set of guidelines that the officials are using now um, that allowed guys like Steph Curry to play in the league. And, but it was also, uh, there were some players slower, thick guys who couldn't move and jump that, you know, it cost them their career because they couldn't play today's a game where I mean, look, the seven-footers have to shoot threes. It cost yeah, me my career because I was ball. slow and couldn't jump. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's a high ball screen game. Um, and, you know, you attack from the top. And, and everybody's got to shoot threes. And today, you know, the bigs have to shoot the threes as well. And uh, it's, I mean, it's a great game to watch. I, I've had, uh, you say I have many titles. The team will go nameless. But since September, I've wor- I worked. I now work for an NBA team and, you know, I do work with them in practice. I do work with them uh, by observing their games, sending them notes um, and, you know, pregame stuff, et cetera. And the whole idea is to get them to the point where they can navigate from one possession to the other, as far as emotions are concerned, but also play hard without fouling and then find ways to get to the line. And so I got hired to do that and I've been having a great time. But it makes me look in, inside the game from the analytics standpoint. And so, you know, if a team has a, a player that they feel should be getting to the line more, you got to really look and say, all right, why? Let's break it down. And we're talking about every single possession. And, and within 24 seconds, you know, looking at all the movements and what did and did not work. Let's face it, back in the 60s and 70s, there was nothing close to that. I mean, we didn't have video until, you know, well into the 70s. It was, uh, you know, we did we trained each other by moving salt and pepper shakers around and uh, animations. So that's how much things have changed. Wow. And, and, you know, one of the things that I marvel at all the time, Ed, is now that we are in, you know, high def and super slow-mo replay and, and replays are part of the game, is when you look at replays of, of tough, tough calls, even on replay, it's so hard to tell. I mean, that live action is, oh, yeah. real, is really hard to make that call, isn't it? There's a, we call it in the business uh, 20 percenters. So <clears throat> 80% of the calls are going to be there. They're either going to be, they'd be graded as correct call or incorrect call or no call correct or no call incorrect, but they're going to be there. You can see it. You can identify it. You go over there. There's approximately 15 to 20% of the plays in each game that are what you call gray area plays. And this developed through the intangibles and the great referees that had to referee these plays, you know, and they have a feel for the sense of these plays, the speed of the game, who's playing uphill, who's not. Um, and these are plays where you where if we put a room of 50 officials in and we do training in the summertime, similar to this, and when you run a play, you're going to have 25 hands, say block 25 hands will say offensive foul. Wow. Uh, and then each group could, could build a case. I mean, you see those plays. It's just, Half step here, half step there. I mean, I heard you talking about Jimmy Butler, and um, you know the guy can really defend. That's the biggest thing he brought. Yep. He can really defend, and he's smart, and he knows lines of attack. And you watch him; that man is an extremely bright player, and he gets to lines of attack. That's look. I know he's going to make some big shots, but he does the intangibles 
that's going to help them tremendously. Yeah, they needed that acquisition. And, uh, Gail, a heavy price, but never too heavy a price for a guy like that. Ed, um, I've always also been curious about, you know, what it feels like to be an official and never have that home game. I mean, you're always on the road. Everyone's always going to be booing you against you. You're a Philadelphian at heart, but you probably even have to be careful ever about being perceived as any right. kind of bias towards your local team. What's it like when you, you're on the road so much during a season and, and you walk into all these arenas? Does it get lonely? Is it hard? Well, there's a, a very strong camaraderie in the officiating community. And, and of course, um, when you went to three, it's really truly a, a team situation. Uh, so if you think about that, you know, the referee will, the officials, if they don't work the night before, um, and that happens many times when they're off between games, they're in the hotel. They have a meeting, which is 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, and the three of them, and they have things in the league office, and they'll go through a, tup- a couple hours of basketball. And then they'll all have lunch together, um, and then it's kind of some downtime. You know, close your eyes for a while, and then get ready to work and go to the arena as a team. And when the game's over, there's reports to file, and <clears throat> there's paperwork to do, and then they go back and get ready for the next day. So, um, you know, you, you think about you, people envision you kind of out there by yourself, and you're really not. And I think the other thing is that, um, you know, you build relationships and like really through the officiating community, um, you know, we were, my wife and I have been involved in pro athletes outreach. And so different cities, you have people that you say, Hey, listen, I have an off day. Let's come and have lunch. And and you, um, you know, so I think you can be to your question. You can be as al- as alone as you want to be. Or you can be surrounded by people as much as you want to be. Cool. And and Ed, um, Ed, was there ever any times in your career where you felt like you and, and look the, the the game generally is not going to be decided by the officials, and I feel that strongly. But there can be times when that critical call at the end of the game does determine an outcome. Did you ever feel like you you blew one and, and it really stuck with you for a while? Uh, definitely, <laughs> no question. Um, yeah, I kicked the play. Um, in the game one of the NBA Finals, uh, Washington, Seattle at Washington. And um, I called a play with two tenths of a second to play. uh, Incorrect call. And um, I put Washington on the line, and they won the game. And it happened to be because of television. It was like four days between games. So you can imagine what they were talking about. (laughs) And I just, you know... And I was like, you know, I couldn't get away from it. I when I blew the whistle, and I came to report, I knew that the, that I was not going to like the play. Um, and um, I had, you know, I had a breakdown in fundamentals, and um, called something I thought I saw, which wasn't there. So you know, that's a high-profile situation. Uh, you know, I think that in the course of the game, you're going to have plays that say, ah, "I'd like to have that one back." Today. Or the officials review video at halftime, and so the beauty of this is that uh, coaches will, or players will say, "Would you do me a favor? Would you look at that play?" Because I'm not sure about it. And the credibility that they have, they come out and if they missed the play, say, "You know, you were right. You know, the play was not called correctly. This is what it should have had." You know, we looked at the play. They'll look at six, seven plays, eight plays at halftime. Wow. 
And if you watch when they come out of the second half, lots of times they'll go to players and have dialogue with them, which is tremendous because it builds credibility. Sure. Which, um, you know, we never had anything close to that. Yeah, I never saw it in the past. Jari would like to ask something. Coach, I was going to ask you, like, so do you see the refs um, maybe getting a little more harsh or paying, you know, having more attention to detail on some of the calls, whether it be like, you know, a walking call or just like you saw James Harden shooting no free throws the other day and being called for crossing the free throw yeah. line, something that he's always yeah. probably done over the last couple of years. Do you see the refs revisiting some of these bylaws that are built in that maybe have, you know, they've been lackadaisical with moving forward in the next couple of years? Well, uh, yeah, I think um, here's what here's what happens is um, you know Monty McCutcheon is in the leadership position with Joe Crawford and and Mark Wunderlich. They're the coaches of the referees, and so they're every day they're sending them things, sending them things. So if there is um, there's a slippage in certain violations, things that happen, but we don't want people to travel. And we want if it's traveling, they want it called. They don't want lane violations. If it's there, they want to call. Right. <clears throat> Sometimes in the heat of battle, it doesn't get to the high enough on the priority list, and you know it's it's not called when you see it there. So what happens is, in that meeting they have at eleven o'clock in the morning, there'll be plays with, which they call points of education that are plays that maybe there was slippage, and it's a reminder. Hey, listen, remember now, you know, this is the, this is the rule on this play, because for the most part. They're they're honed in on calling illegal contact, and and that's obviously they've got to get those plays right. So then all the other nuances, um, footwork, lanes, all those kinds of things, they've got to make sure they move them up their priority list. So because of the grading and the accountability, they're I mean, these guys really don't want to miss anything, and and you'll see that uh, when they do, they're reminded. And and then there's a you'll, you'll see things that are, that are called that way. Ed, Ed, I wanted to ask you a question, and, and Jari's perspective as well, because he had calls that you know went against him in his career, and he disagreed. And he would have dialogue with officials and stuff like that. Can a player? Can a coach? Because because it's still human. You're still human beings, and it's still human nature. Can a player a, a, or a coach work you in a way that really is advantageous for them? Well, I don't like the word work. Uh, wrong term. <laughs> wrong term. <laughs> you can't use those type of words. Communicate no, with you. With yeah, I, I had that conversation with Greg Popovich on more than once, and um, he's, you know, a true professional. I think it's information exchange. Yeah, yeah. And we'll look at it that way. And there are times when the official or the player, I mean, or the coach or the player can say something to an official and I mean, that's part of what I do with this team that I work with is talk about the effective dialogue to just remind them, say, look, uh, this is what's happening here. When I'm cutting from A to B, there's a lot of hands I'm trying to get from one side of the court to the other or up on the ball screen. You know, it's hard for me to get above when he's moving um, in this. Sometimes the officials are told that, you know, if the dialogue is respectful and we're making a point is to listen. Why not? Okay. I hear you. That's You make a good point. Fine. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to turn around and going to, you know, bend, bend my decision making and call everything one way. But there are times when people can bring stuff to people's attention. Um, and 
I think that, uh, you know, in Jairi's case, he had to have a great relationship with the umpire. Yeah, I never really had oh, a great man. relationship with those guys. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but sometimes, some guys. But, uh, but you know, just well, like... Just yeah, like if I was, yeah. Go ahead, Coach. Yeah. yeah, if I was coaching you up on that, I would say, well, find out the guy's name first and call him by his first name. Right. <laughs> Start out with that. Well, you know, so, we, we always uh, got the official report before the game, so we knew guys' names and where they went to school and, you know, where they're from yeah. and their family and stuff. We got a little background with it. But, you know, O-Lyman never really had good rapport with the officials because every time their interaction happened, it's because it was a flag thrown. It, it wasn't, <laughs> you know, on right. you or you're, you're, you got somebody putting their hand in your face mask. But just like our game to where we kind of cha- changed up officials' uh position, whether they're behind the linebackers or behind the offensive line. Did you guys ever talk about maybe adding that fourth official to cover some of those oh, yeah. baselines and stuff? Well, what's happened, uh, uh, the last couple summers during the Las Vegas program <clears throat> and the program that, that is in also in uh, in Salt Lake City, they have experimented you know, using G League officials with four. And it's uh, it's been mixed group, met with uh, mixed reviews. Yeah. I mean, there's some things about it that looks pretty good. I think that they had, uh, there's been a lot of experimenting as to how to use that fourth person, you know, where exactly to put them, uh, him or her, and uh, be in a place where they can be effective. Just like when we went from two to three, it took us a little while to really iron it out to the point where, you know, we had we had good balance and, and as far as our coverage was concerned. It took us almost the whole season. And I, Will that happen with four? I wouldn't bet against it. I mean, that certainly, I would think, is something that I know that Adam Silver has talked about. And um, they're certainly gearing up the development program and, and bringing a lot of quality people in and, and putting them on a fast track to see if that actually could happen. Ed, let's talk about some history here, because I, I like to educate our young friend on, on some of the historical stuff that he's only been able to see in, like, grainy black and white stuff. Um, you, you, you come in in 66. The Celtics have won, I guess at that point, it probably won, like, uh, nine out of 11 cha- or 10 championships. Sixers actually won the championship probably your first year in 66, 67. But they did. It's, and yeah. and then and then I know you also took a little detour and spent some time in the ABA and, and came back when they merged. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm curious from your standpoint who were the best players you ever saw because I, I I'm a Wilk guy. I'm a Philadelphia and I'm a Wilk guy. Um, it I took me a long time to to st- sort of see the point on Jordan. You yeah. know, it was about fifth or sixth championship. And now LeBron, yeah. I got to tell you, LeBron's doing a heck of a job convincing me also. But but talk to me about right. the best guys you ever saw and 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 sort of has the game evolved well, over the years. Yeah. I- I was, I'm also a Wilk guy. I mean, grew up in Philly. I saw him as a high school player. Uh, I, I knew a lot of people that knew him. My first, my, my first real exposure to the NBA was that <clears throat> uh, the late great Dolph Shays took, took me personally, called me on the phone, said, I want you to come with me, and took me to the Sixers training camp in Margate. And Alex Adam was the coach. And that was the year that they won the championship. And of course, uh, they put me out there and to referee their scrimmages with some local guy from Margate, who I have no idea <laughs> who he was, but just a local guy who was just, you know, filling in the spot. And I forget, Will came over to me and says, uh, hey, you doing there, fellow? I said, good. And he introduced himself. Uh, and um, he says, uh, look, um, I know you're here to try to 
in press. He says, but just call it. Don't worry about it. He said, just let it go up and down a little bit and so we can get out of here. And it was like, okay. <laughs> it, was, it was my first exposure of managing the, the environment. You know, so those guys didn't want a whole lot called. They just wanted to know if I could run up and down. But I, I was kind of became somewhat attached to them because I was with them in their training camp uh, and I was 24 years old and coaching football at Marple Newtown High School. So it was, uh, it was kind of a pretty interesting experience. We go up and they were pretty amazing. Uh, that was a great team. I mean, not too many weaknesses there. Ooh, and and it was. Billy Cunningham off the bench. You know. That that team was voted the best team in the NBA for the first thirty five years, and, and unfortunately for yeah. Philadelphians, they only won that one championship. While the Celtics won eleven out of thirteen years because they came back and won the next two. Right. Um, and Wilt, Wilt, of course, was traded. Unfortunately, we could recount that history. But um, interesting, right. you, you mentioned the game where you're officiating between Jabbar and then Lou Alcindor and and Wilt, which must have been a great Milwaukee Bucks L A Lakers game. And these are two, you know, sort of the passing of the torch guys at that point from the, the greatest big man ever to the next big man and right. and um right. but will and Joe won't even know this will never fouled out of the game you talk uh, he never fouled out of a game in his whole career never no. so he no. certainly know how to play and, with and fouls he <laughs> knew how to play without that with, with fouls uh he was extremely smart um he defended hard when he had to i mean he did all the things but there was nothing that he could not do i mean Joe, you remember the year that um the press was saying, uh, you know, you, you shoot too much, uh, this and that. Sure. And he said, okay, well, watch this. And he led the league in assists uh, yeah. the next year. I mean, he was, he was a tremendous passer. Um, you know, there was just, he was, to me, it was amazing. I, for a man that size, to be that agile, to have that understanding and play, um, you know, I, I just thought that he was pretty amazing. And you can't compare him. So Jordan, they're two different kind of players. But when you talk about impact, like when Wilt was on his game, uh, there was impact there. It was difficult. It was really hard to beat their teams because the way he played. Um, and you know, it was uh, it was just a matter of, and you had to put some people around him. And it, so the Lakers, you know, eventually did got that going. And obviously, that in Philadelphia, that was the case in the first year. But um, I don't know. There, there's there's kids today now because you know we have a camp that we run and tied in with all the AAUs. I'm just blown away with the the athletic ability. Sure. I mean, you take like this kid that plays in Milwaukee, uh, Giannis. You know, I mean, six eleven, seven feet. He plays point guard. <laughs> he plays the three. Uh, you know, he blocks shots. He can run the floor. I mean, it's. You know, well, well, uh, well documented that he's a great freak. I mean, you see a guy like that. I've never seen an athlete like that. Well, and, and the yeah. whole the whole change from the big men shooting the ball and handling the ball. I, you know, when I first yeah. saw, I saw Kevin Durant play for Texas his one year in college, and I went down the game with Speedy Morris, an old time Philly coach, and uh, just want to see this yeah. kid. And first play down the court, he took a dribble to his left and popped a three pointer. And I'd never seen a big man do it like that at that point, Ed. And it did yeah. just drop my jaw. Right. But now we take that for granted that these guys can do it. And you talked about Wilt's prowess and Wilt's athleticism and dominance. Joel Embiid. 
is the first guy that actually, and, and maybe a little bit Elijah on, but he kind of reminds me of that physical presence that Wilt had and tremendous all-around athleticism. Yeah. Now, he doesn't play the I game agree. exactly like Wilt, and he doesn't, you know, because the game's no. changed so much. But he really has that, right. you know, that incredible, uh, just an incredible physical specimen at that size and the things he can do. Yeah. Um, a couple of Wilt stats, by the way, because I always like to educate these younger listeners <laughs> and, and my and my partner here, and that is in 1961-62 when Wilt averaged 50.4 points per game. 50.4 points per game he averaged. They played longer games though, right? No, no, but but interestingly enough in that same season, he also averaged 48.5 minutes per game. The game was 48 minutes. He averaged 48.5 counting the overtimes. The guy never came out of the game, and now, you know, guys take vacations and weeks off and, and and they traveled, and they traveled he got a, at his size, he still had to travel by uh, whatever commercial well, air yeah. or buses and play in these awful but they gyms. They weren't and, as big as the buses and commercial airs, probably. Yeah, I mean they probably were the same same size. But uh, so, let, let me tell you, I got on a plane one day for the Sixers, and it was one of those old old uh, DC nines out of Philadelphia with uh, whatever that airline was before U.S. Air, and uh, and I walk in the thing, and there's a pair of legs out on the aisle, first row was Wilt. I mean, there was no place for him to go. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, these planes were not built for those guys. Right. He and Jabari you know, he did a commercial. They actually did a commercial about the on an airplane. <laughs> um, but but Ed, a couple more things I want to hit on before I let you go because I could I could literally go on for hours with you, and there's so many areas I haven't even touched on. And this is a a tough area that I'm going to ask you about. I don't want to put you on the spot, but a few years back, you had a rogue official in Donahue who who could have really brought down the NBA in a big way with a betting right. scandal and and, um, and served time right. and, and was, you know, was was cohorting with with sort of mobster-type criminals, you know, organized crime and, and, right. and, and affecting NBA games. It, betting is proliferating like crazy, of course. It's always been there, but now it's out there like the leagues are even part of it. Right. It's, it's legalized everywhere. What do you do as officials to try to combat the obvious risk that gamblers intruding and in, 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 Infiltrating the game could have because an official really could influence the outcome. Certainly, the point spread easier. Well, first place, when Davis Stern said this is one person, one person alone. If you knew the self-centeredness of him, uh, I'm not a fan. You know, I thought he should have done a lot more time what he did to our profession. Um, But at the same time, you know, people are are. This is a great profession. I mean, refereeing professional basketball is a tremendous profession. And there is, you can make a lifetime worth of money, and you can be extremely comfortable the rest of your life. Uh, And now, uh, I mean, the challenges of getting into the development program, the things that people have to go through, um, I mean, frankly, what we do now, Donaghy would not have been hired, even though he had talent as a referee, right? Because there were certain things that he did off the court that were clear character issues that were serious red flags. Um, and, you know, he was very, very coy and he was able to do things. Well, today, with the way security is and, and all the things, the vetting that goes on, uh, that he would not have been hired. It just wouldn't have happened. And, and you know, I, I mean, I have personal experiences. I spent a whole year with the FBI. I was in the league office when that happened. Um, that was my least favorite year of my life. Sorry. And um, so, you know, 
I'm a, I'd like to move on to another topic, but to tell you that uh, I am extremely confident that in today's game, um, the, the game is well protected and, and, uh, as it should be. But the people they just hired, if, if you could see, like, if you would do a character rating on them and just their understanding of what's right and what is wrong, uh, I mean, there are any red flag. If you are, if you have a history of overdrawing your credit cards, you're not going to get hired. I mean, there's just, this is just one thing after the other, after the other. So the security dig in is, I mean, it's, it's amazing now. All right. All right. We're so, done with that topic. I, I, it's, it's unpleasant. I know. <laughs> and, and I appreciate, yeah, I appreciate so cause I've always believed in integrity. Yeah. Yeah. When you, I mean, integrity, if we don't have that, we have nothing. I mean, and if the league doesn't have that, then, you know, we might as well be the barnstorming like the club tribes. Sure. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, what the officials do, uh, will they miss calls? Yeah. But the, any inferences about agendas and, oh, he did that on purpose. So he does like this team, all this stuff that's put out. And a lot of that's media driven, not as much anymore, because I think the media has become more and more educated. Um, the league has done a really good job with that of bringing people into seminars and walking them through the process. Uh, and so that you'll see, a, you know, a, a, a much better representation of the league office and the officiating community than we had before. But, uh, you know, Red Arbach used to, he used to complain about referees being from Philadelphia. Sure, there, were lo- there have been a lot of them. One night, oh my goodness, one night I'm working in Boston Garden with Jack Madden. And then we have a tough game, and they lose coming down the stretch. So he comes down after the game, and he's kicking on our door. He says, you filled off your referees, any referees? And I was, it was kind of funny. And Jack Madden, who's got a had great sense of humor, he says, I'm not from Philly. He says, that's all right. You went through there. I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he like Trenton or like somewhere North. nearby? I know Jack was a, was, yeah. was, was right outside. Right. But, yeah, he grew up right outside. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I can't let one of my favorite NBA personalities and talents of all time go without touching on it because you saw him probably in his heyday where most of us didn't. And that was the ABA when you got to, to officiate games where Joyce Irving was dominating. Just talk oh, for yeah. a couple seconds about what, what the legend of Dr. J was really like in the ABA with the red, white, and blue ball yeah. on the Afro, um, and, and, and a, a, a really entertaining league that most people really never got to see. Oh, it was tremendous. I loved the three years I was there. You know, I went there for business reasons, and it t- worked out very well for us, but uh, the thing about, there were only two players in my career that I could say that when I was on the court that I watched, and, and just understand what that means. Like, you can't watch a player when you're out on the court. You've got a referee, the defender. You got a referee sequences. You cannot look at, at a player like you would as a fan. If you do, you're you're going to get the plays wrong. You're just not going to be able to work. Two players in my career that I had the greatest temptation to do that, and I caught I, I got caught up at times. And it was Julius, and it was Larry, and those two guys. And there were times when they would just choreograph the game, and they would do things that I'd never seen before. And, you know, I mean, Julius would get from one side of the basket to the other and the things that he would do um, just gracefully. And, you know, he was a great human being, um, just took it to a different level. And there were times when I would go, wow, I can't believe I just saw that. And, and you know, you have to kind of pinch yourself, hey, get back in the game. Because 
the guy just and then uh Larry occasionally did that uh, and as far as uh, uh he was concerned. And I'll tell you um if you have time I'll tell you a quick one quick Larry Bird story. Go, go quick. Don't don't stuff. praise him too much. He's still a Celtic. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know. Well, no, okay, I great so, appreciation for Larry, what a terrific player he was. I really do. It is in his heyday. We're playing. We have a game the day after Christmas in Portland, and um, so he comes out before we're warming up. He comes over. He says, "Eddie says uh, tonight we're going to give these guys a treat." I said, "What's that?" He says, "I am going to play the first half left-handed and the second half right-handed." <laughs> so I just want to let you know. So, so you'll see stuff here. He was unreal. So it, we're about halfway through the first first half. He's six for seven left-handed. He's coming across the lane. These little jumpers, these little half hooks, um, and every shot was left-handed. And it, the, the place was just they just couldn't believe it. I got to watching him. Now I'm like, oh my, I can't believe I'm watching this. She comes across the lane. He gets hit on the arm, and I don't call. I don't blow the whistle because I was watching him. So he yells at me. He says, "What are you doing?" He said, I said something else too. Uh, I said, oh, oh no, no! I, I told him. I said, "I am sorry. I'm watching." He says, "Well, he says get the film and watch later." But <laughs> <laughs> he had fifty some that night. Uh, that, that's remarkable. That night. And, and Ed, I yeah. mean, you re- you refereed in, in such different buildings and different times and different types of intensity to me than the, the game is now. Um, there was nothing like those Sixer Celtics rivalries in those games in the Garden and the Spectrum, was there? Pretty loud. It was pretty loud. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, the old Chicago Stadium, Okay, they used to get that way and it used to vibrate. I mean, the building would vibrate. And I, I would, uh, when the playoffs were over, I would have a ring in my ears that was, um, which would be equivalent to tornadoes, and it would last for about two or three weeks. Wow! Because of the loud buildings that we had during the, especially in the as you went to the second, third round, and you know you got deeper. Those were some, some places that were pretty, pretty insane. Yeah, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Um, can we bring you back another time? Sure. I mean, you know, um, I, I mean, I get I'm probably going to get the next time back. I can tell two or three Jai Ray stories. That he probably would go. not tell. <laughs> <There you laughs> <go>. <laughs> then we will save those for next time. He likes to ask our guest. Before go we let you go, we have this this segment that we call the Colton Champions. So Gerald is good at telling you the champions of the year you select. He's going to tell you champions in NHL, MLB, NFL, and the NBA. You just have to select the year. Uh, you had to pick a year and who the champion was? You just give me the year and I'll give you the champions. Yep. I might throw in a little extra. Oh, no knowledge. kidding. Yeah, oh, really? it's, it's wasted okay. knowledge yet, except on my own podcast. He's like 99% so far. Uh, I hesitated on one. I had to switch really? it. But I, I really? really didn't miss it, but I had to correct myself because of just the way the years okay. work being split um, up. Okay. Um, do you do runner-ups? No, and I, that's a, that's a hole in my knowledge. But you you, you can fill in the runner oh, up. All right, well, here I'll give you I'll give you a challenge. I'll give you a challenge. Uh, one of the greatest NBA finals ever was played in 1993. This is easy. Yeah. Well, that I mean that that is because that was the third of Jordan's championships before walking away. But um, and then and then the other sports in '93. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Okay, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute. Sure. But the, but, you had to say what game did they win? They didn't win in seven. 
They wanted this was the, five. Well, that this was, was the Paxson shot in, yeah. in Phoenix in Game Six. six. In game Six and against Charles's Phoenix Suns team, where Charles was oh, the MVP Mark, that right. year. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you? Yeah. Now, what game did you do? Did you do Game Six? I had that game, and I had I had Game I had Game Three, the overtime game. Wow. Um, but um, that was the game that this is a Michael Jordan story that we had a play that we missed. There was a foot on the line, three-point shot or not. And we called the play in favor of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we called it a three-point shot, and the player's foot was on the line. And we didn't have replay. And we knew we missed the play. And we were trying to reconstruct it. And we were trying to reconstruct it. It was a couple timeouts. I went over to Michael, and I said, we are in a world of hurt here. you got to help us. I knew he saw the play. He was right in front of their bench. I said, we do not know what happened there. He said, foot was on the line. We took a point away from Chicago, and he told us to play. How about that for integrity? Wow. And they still won. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, that is a great story. Yeah. Go ahead. Give them the, still, other, give them the other sports. And hey, but still, yep. still, Jairie, that was a game that there was about 17 lead changes. Uh, and at that gotcha. time, it was like, we took a point, we took yeah. a point off the board. Yeah, with that many lead changes, yeah. Well, we got pretty powerful. All right, so so the other the other champions that year of 1993 were in baseball. The Toronto Blue Jays beat the Phillies on that Joe Carter walk off home run. Oh, that Drake used later <laughs> for the for his cover of his Poor album. Mitch. I think Montreal yeah. Canadiens snuck in and, and had finished low in the standings and won a Stanley Cup. Um, the Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl. And even North Carolina was the champions of uh, the University of North Carolina. Tar Heels won the NCAA championship. And we transferred the, transformed that year from George W. Bush presidency to Bill Clinton was sworn in on, on January 20th. So they all won the championships while he was in the wow. office. Did I miss anything? This is impressive. It's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 this it's, and he's, what? He's, he's pretty legit on this. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I mean, seriously, you, yeah, we could, you could have your own little show uh, just on that. And and, uh, and and but Ed's got knowledge from a whole lot of other stuff too. Does, he was even part of AIAW championships back when Immaculata was oh, winning them. Yeah. And, and and I still I would love to talk to you about women's college basketball that you were a part of a real heyday of and, and the transformation as to yeah. really became a big time sport. And a movie was done yeah. and a little Mighty Max, Mighty Max, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but there's so many yeah, things you've done in your career and life and continue to do so from coaching football to being one of the all time great NBA officials and still a big part of. So, Ed, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for coming on. Love hey, the truth. Have a lot of fun, guys. Uh, and keep up the great work. Thanks. You too, Ed. We'll do. That's Ed Rush, uh, just a, an incredible person and, and tremendous official, and, and I know he's been a great mentor of yours. Ja, we have, I don't want to waste too much time because we only have a few minutes to go, and I, I, I God, Taylor's still signaling me only four. <laughs> so what up, what so, we, so I, I cannot yep. talk Sixers without talking Markel Fultz. You know, <laughs> the story just continues to get weirder Goodness and weirder. And, I know, and look, right? you know, I'm pretty passionate about the Sixers. I, I felt from the start it was a disaster yeah. because I never agreed with trading with the Boston Celtics, who were two picks ahead. The Celtics had the first pick right, back right. in the uh, the 2016-17 draft. No, 17-18 draft. 2017. It's not that long ago. God, this has been such a short-time disaster. Yeah. So it's June of 2017. It's only a second season. Right? Yeah, yeah. C- Celtics have the first pick. Sixers have the, sec- have the third. And the Sixers have to overtake Boston to get where they're trying to get, where the, right. this whole process right. has been going. And they take that pick. 
and they trade that with another great pick that they have from, from a trade with the Lakers, and they trade that to the Boston Celtics to just move up two picks and yeah. draft Markel Fultz. And Fultz was drafted as a point guard. Well, we already had Ben Simmons, who had sat out a year and was ready to make his rookie season debut. He's the so, point guard. So he hasn't, so he hasn't played, and, and now we've picked a point guard. Yeah. We pass on some great players in that draft. There were so many, one of which is Tatum, who then crushes the Sixers in the playoffs that year for Boston. So yeah, Boston yeah. sat there, got a draft pick, got what looked like the better player, and the full thing has just been a disaster from whether it's a shoulder injury, whether it's a yips, whether it's mental. And now, this past week, um, he's you know they, they're forcing him. They, they started him this year. They're forcing him to play these minutes when he's really not worthy of them if he hadn't been so heavily invested in by the Sixers. And then after... Um, the game, I guess, Wednesday night, where the, the Sixers, Brett Brown, seemed to use T.J. McConnell for some of the minutes that previously had gone to Markel Fultz. After the game, Fultz just praised T.J., made the right comments about, hey, it's the coach's decision. The next day, his agent chimes in and says he's not going to play anymore for the next three games or participate in team activities till he gets examined by a specialist in Brooklyn, which is going to supposedly go on today and determine what's wrong with his shoulders. I think right. we've reached maybe the point of no return between Markel Fultz and the Sixers, but this is a bizarre sequence of events that has led the first pick from last June, from come now November, getting into December, to be persona really non-grats. And the Philadelphia fans have been so supportive of this guy, cheering his every move. They cheer when he misses shots. These are the the harshest fans in sports, and they cheer when he misses shots. That's how good they've been to this kid, and now it seems like he can't even play here anymore. I, I was supporting him, too. Um, I was heavily in support for him. I, I think it's an injury. Uh, this is what happens when you draft injured players. And I think this is why Boston did not draft him because of his physical and how he may have not passed his physical with them. Um, That's some insider information I gave you, by the way. But uh, <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying, like I mean, I, he he didn't pass his physical. I mean, I think that's why people passed up on him. And you're seeing these results come come out, and he's hurt, and he's. And he's not playing well. And well, well, I mean, really, I just don't, John, like, no one passed up on him. No, he was picked first well, he, in the draft. We well, trade up to pick him. Right. With, with well, a whole when, I, when I say passed on him, I meant the trade that happened yeah, because sure. they weren't going to take him. Sure. But um, And how nobody was trying to jump up to get him or whatever it may be, whatever the case may be. Anyway, I just don't like the agent coming out with the reports. Like, it, it's it, As a player, it's... Is is a little bit weird to have your agent speak for you in the mindset of your body and what's going on because, you know, it's, it's it can be perceived the wrong way. And I think a lot of people are perceiving what his agent is saying the wrong way. And he's able he can he can come back and he may be hiding behind those words that his agent is saying. And I mean, he's just a young player trying to figure it out. But I definitely think it's an injury. I don't think it's the yips. I don't think it's you know, I don't know what that means. But like he's not he's mentally not, you know, there. I think he's just hurt It's an injury for a basketball player to have a shoulder injury is is it's hard to play basketball with a shoulder injury. Your head is your arm is going over your shoulder every single time you yeah. play the game. Yeah, we are going to end our show again this week like we did last week in the tremendous disagreement. Thank God we got <laughs> hey, just thank, so, thank God for Elton Brand and the, and the Jimmy Buckets uh, yeah. deal because I mean that's that's really was you know what was was being great and, and and able for us not to have to worry about. But, but I do agree with you know letting letting your agent talk to you. you know, I, I represented people. I tried not to speak with them yeah. except when I had to deflect bad public scorn against them. Uh, uh, or you know wanted, wanted to sort of be that buffer, and he's had his shooting coach 
speak for him, and now his shooting yeah, coach has just, been dismissed. I mean, yeah. Markel, the problem, one of the problems is Markel is such a young man. He came right. he came after one year of college into the NBA as the first pick with all this pressure, and, you know, you meet different personalities. Markel's not a real outgoing personality. He's a likable, nice guy, but he might not be able to okay. handle that pressure and the mantle and the spotlight and all that stuff, and sometimes you, you mature until this time goes on. I mean, I don't think it's that he can't handle the pressure and the spotlight, because at times he handles it very well. He comes out and performs. He's trying to dunk on people. He's trying to do these big things. But, you know, it's just not working out. I think the kid is hurt. And by that, maybe his, his he's frustrated with himself because he's hurt. You know, who knows? And it, it it's probably wearing on him. But this is not the first uh, bad mistake we made. We made a mistake with the with the big boy from uh, L.A. who's from Jersey. What was his name? Uh, Bynum you're talking about? Bynum. Made a mistake with that yeah, guy. Like, he didn't even play a dang game. This, this one, this one was a critical time period in the development of this franchise with some superstar players. I don't think we're going to miss players. a beat for it. We got Jimmy now. We got two him, him joining the two big superstars we have, I really don't think we already missed a beat last year because I, I, okay. you know against Boston and could have gone further okay. with, the, with that. But and and you're yeah. going to miss that draft pick they you gave let up. Let the but, Tatum thing go. But, but you got to let it go and you got to yeah, move gotta forward. And the fact go. is they got Joel Embiid who's a superstar. They got Ben Simmons got who's Jimmy getting Butler, there who and, and and I think is a superstar. And, and Butler who came and some other pieces. Up. And there are fourteen. What are we? Fourteen. TJ gets more playing time now. He's I think TJ. And you know how much I love you know how much I love TJ. So and. Anyway, look, we, we've had a full full hour with so much more to talk about, and so we'll come back next Monday, yeah. and we'll do it again. You anyway, it's always great to be with you, John. We have Taylor Carditis, who survived the floods getting here yep. in his ark <laughs> <laughs> to, to make it here and, and put us on for this hour. So, for Jerry Evans and Gerald Colton, thanks a lot for listening to Colton's Court. We'll see you again next week. Peace. Peace.